So welcome back to our sixth and final lesson on the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be looking again at the Sermon on the Mount, and then this week closing out the Sermon on the Mount. And we're using the Sermon on the Mount as kind of a lens through which to read the rest of the Gospel of Matthew, or to get a sense of, of how Matthew's Gospel functions, um, particularly in relationship to Mark, um, but then in general, um, in contrast to the other Gospels. So today, as I mentioned, we're going to be closing out the Sermon on the Mount, looking at verses um, chapter 7, verses 13 through 29. But before we get to that, um, I want us to do just a brief review. Uh, we're not going to review the Methean contrast um, because by this point we've talked about it or introduced it and reviewed it um, at least five times from the previous five weeks. So um, I, I don't want us to review it again, but we will touch on it again. So it, it so we're not completely going to escape that homework. But looking back at what we discussed last week, um, kind of a broad overview of of what these verses covered in chapter seven, one through twelve. Um, is that the, the previous parts, the immediately previous parts of the Sermon on the Mount focused on pursuing that superior righteousness, that righteousness um, that was mentioned in chapter five that surpasses the Pharisees. Um, and so it makes sense then after um, exhorting an audience to pursue better righteousness, um, it makes sense to then kind of introduce a caution uh, of humility, a, a warning of humility against becoming maybe too conceited or too uh, proud of one's righteousness. Um, a couple examples of the righteousness that, that were mentioned as far as the behavior and the actions that Jesus exhorts his audience to. Um, in chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, we have the statements on judging um, that we're told not to judge. And we talked about last week that this doesn't mean that it's not a call to self-reflection before judgment, it's a call to self-reflection about judgment. So it's not that I examine myself first and then I'm free to go ahead and judge the other person. It's that I should examine myself and my desire to judge the other person is already an indication of some sort of, of spiritual poverty or spiritual need. Um, so, I, so I'm taking that sense of judgment that I'm feeling, I'm reflecting on what that reveals about myself. And I think the the part of the, the big idea that comes out of this is that then by reflecting on my own desire for judgment and my own shortcomings, it alleviates my desire to then turn around and to invoke that or, or uh, uh, apply that judgment to other people. And then we get uh, in verse six, chapter seven, verse six, the very confusing verse that I mentioned about casting pearls before swines uh, and also um, calling a, a dog, calling the audience a dog or, or not, um, throwing precious things before dogs who return and eat their vomit. So we have this kind of um, a really puzzling verse, especially coming off of instructions to not judge, um, because we get these verses about not judging other people. And then we immediately get a verse that introduces the idea of not wasting important and precious things before people who are unworthy of receiving them. And at least that's how it's often been interpreted, kind of in the practical sense of how the, the common um, the common application of how this verse has worked out in the in the history of the church, uh, it often finds use as a verse that actually supports the judgment of other people rather than supporting the claims of one through five of not leaning into the judgment of other people. And I suggested that that kind of a helpful way for us to read this verse instead would be for us to think about 
the pearls and the swines and not not wasting them before um, unworthy figures to turn that into a moment of self-reflection instead of thinking about who are the people in my life who are swine or dogs and don't deserve these pearls instead thinking about how are we ourselves trampling upon pearls how are we ourselves trampling upon the precious things that we have been given um, and I think that makes some sense in its placement in the Sermon on the Mount that we the, the audience is receiving this instruction that's given from Jesus about how to pursue righteousness. And I think the warning in verses one through five about judgment are actually an attempt at or are, are a form of trampling on those precious things that by leaning in towards the judgment of uh, others and the condemnation of others, we actually kind of undo some of the very teachings that Jesus is giving to us. And so in a sense, we could then be trampling the precious pearls um, that are the instructions that Jesus is giving on how we are to live with God, but then also how we are to live with um, other people and our fellow um, uh, our fellow humans as well. And then we get the verses in uh, or the final section that we looked at last week, verse seven through twelve, um, the famous passage about seeking and knocking and asking, and that if you do all of those things, you'll get what you ask for. Um, is the kind of simplified takeaway from it. Uh, and we've talked about how that can be problematic, especially if it's kind of um, applied without any type of genuine theological reflection or concern for what the verses are doing and specifically what the verses are doing in their in their context, um, how they relate to the, the verses that go around them. Um, instead of using these as kind of a ticket to get anything you want from God, um, it's better for us to think about that trust and faith are the key ideas here. That when we ask, when we seek, when we knock, we are doing those actions because they demonstrate a trust and a faithfulness on our part towards who we think God is and what we trust that God is going to provide for us and do um, in response to our prayers. And so with these verses, we think of them more as a call to, to faithfulness than a call to kind of a, a jackpot or lottery ticket where we get whatever we want. So from those verses, then we lead into um, this final section of the Sermon on the Mount. And so kind of from Matthew um, chapter five verses uh, around verse 13, uh, the following verses after that, from that point forward, we get a shift towards very clear instructions from Jesus on what proper behavior is and what proper action is. Um, and so from those verses around 513 or 520, moving onwards up to this verse, verse seven, uh, chapter seven, verse 13, the, that whole section in there, those two chapters, uh, three chapters are roughly um, instructions on how we are to behave and how we are to um, live out our kingdom logic. Um, and how we are to pursue that kingdom logic in relationship with others and in relationship with God. Uh, beginning in verse 713, or I should say closing, ending in verse 713, we get a shift that's um, still involved with instructions on behavior and righteousness, um, but it shifts towards a, a very kind of eschatological framework, an idea of a warning about the future things that are coming. And so in a sense, these final sections that we look at today are kind of the, the um, if we, I, I hate this analogy, but if we think about a, a carrot and a stick, um, in some ways, these, the, these closing verses are the stick, whereas we have been promised that doing these things um, will, we'll, uh, if we seek and knock, then God will hear our prayers. 
Um, if we do things for the pleasure of God instead of for the pleasure of people, then we will be rewarded for that. So we kind of have the carrot in these opening uh, other verses. Um, and we get this warning at the end that is essentially kind of pointing us towards the future that is coming and to say, now that you are entering the kingdom, now that you are living according to the kingdom, you have to behave in these kingdom centric ways in order to enter into that kingdom. Um, and so that's what we get in, in these final verses and kind of broad strokes. That's what we get. Um, but we'll, we'll um, obviously look at them in a little bit uh, more more details. Um, so in a sense, we get the these are the consequences that will happen for those who choose not to follow the instructions of Jesus, who choose to live in disharmony with other people or um, to borrow from the hypocrite passage we looked at, who choose to live in kind of a hypocritical stance towards God in their religious posture. Um, so this, uh, this passage um, can often be used to, to point towards doctrines or belief. Um, if we look at Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, that's the narrow gate passage. Um, I'll just read those two verses quickly. So it, it says, you can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad and its gate is wide for the many, way, for the many who choose that way. But the gateway to life is very narrow and the road is difficult and only a few ever find it. So in this, uh, this passage that talks about the narrow way and the narrow gate and the difficulty of entering into the narrow gate and the narrow way um, can very easily be read as a statement about doctrine or how we interpret doctrine. The idea of um, that we have to kind of align ourselves with this core critical mass of beliefs, and when we get in line with this very narrow set of theological beliefs, then we are on the straight and narrow, we are able to enter in through the gate. Um, what I want us to think about as we go through these verses today is to think about, um, as we've said over and over, and as I'm sure you've heard over and over from various teachers, is that context when interpreting scripture is always key. So if we're going to ask, how does one choose the narrow gate? How does one choose the narrow way? Um, then we have to read that in context. And so we're going to put these verses on hold for just a minute, 13 and 14. And we're going to kind of look ahead at the following verses that come after it, because those following verses, I believe, fill out exactly what it means to be in the narrow way and the narrow, uh, the narrow gate. So let's pause for a minute with that question in mind. Let's think about what does it mean for us to choose the narrow way? How does one actually choose the narrow gate? So we go on to chapter 7, verses 15 through 20, and these, these verses read, Beware of false prophets who come disguised as harmless sheep, but are really vicious wolves. You can identify them by their fruit, that is, by the way they act. Can you pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? A good tree produces good fruit, and a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, and a bad tree can't produce good fruit. So every tree that does not produce good fruit is chopped down and thrown into the fire. Yes, just as you can identify a tree by its fruit, so you can identify people by their actions. So with the question in mind of how does one enter into the narrow way, we get this, this example, this parable that follows um, immediately on that. And, and something that's lost in this, these verses lost by the English translation, particularly here, but it's, it's frequent in 
uh, most English translations, because we don't use this verb in English the same way, at least not uh, that it sounds natural. Um, but the, the verb that appears here as producing good fruit um, in verse 17, verse 18, verse 19, um, and then also in verse 20 um, as, as well applies, um, the, the idea applies in verse 20 as well. But the verb that's used here the, is translated as produce. So producing good fruit, producing bad fruit. Um, in Greek, that's actually a Greek verb that means to do something. Um, it can mean to make, um, but it's to make in the sense of doing something, producing something. And so something that's lost in the English trans translations here of just thinking about that trees produce fruit um, is the active part of this is that trees actually make fruit. Um, and so a sense we could actually say that a good tree does good fruit, like produces, makes good fruit. And the reason I draw emphasis to that is because we're going to see even more emphatically in the, in the coming verses um, that the call here in these verses of how one chooses the narrow way is very much based on action. Um, and so in verse 20, um, the end of this translation here, the New Living Translation says, so you can identify people by their actions. Uh, the, the literal translation is that you can identify people by their fruit, just like you can identify a tree by its fruit, you can also identify people by their, by their fruit. And so the fruit here again ties into that doing or that making, it's the produce of something, it's what you have actually produced um, with your actions. So if we read the verses in this light and read the following 13 and 14 in light of verses 15 through 20, the way that one enters into the narrow way and the way that one enters in through the narrow gate um, is not strictly by following a set of narrow doctrinal beliefs, uh, but it's actually by the fruit that one produces, or the, or rather we should say that the fruit that one produces reveals the character and the nature of that person. Um, now, I know that, that um, many will say as soon as we kind of hear these words that the way that one enters into the way is through works, uh, that it immediately raises red flags for us, right? As we want to say, wait, what about faith versus works? Because uh, we aren't saved by works. So Zane, why are you claiming that works are what put us into the narrow way? Um, so we may not be saved by works, but it's important for us to realize, and this verse illustrates it well, that, that works are not irrelevant to faith. To say that it's faith versus works kind of creates a false contrast, that it has to be either faith or works that are important for the Christian faith. Um, and scripture so, shows us throughout, and the New Testament also shows us throughout, that, the, that works and faith are not mutually exclusive, that it's not if you have faith, then you can't have good works or works are gone, or that if you have good works, then you're clearly not a person who relies on faith. Throughout scripture, we see that those two things actually work in tandem. And that's what these verses are drawing our attention to, um, is that the faithfulness of a person to the teachings of Jesus, which have all come before these verses, the faithfulness of someone to actually carrying out these teachings of Jesus is that they then produce good fruit. And that that good fruit is a way of identifying those people who are in line with the teachings of Jesus. Now, now note that in verse 15, the, the target of these particular instructions here are the identification of false prophets, the identification of people who are coming in in wolf's clothing. So they are intentionally people who are coming in with, um, with false motives and looking to do some sort of harm to the community, some sort of, sort of, some sort of harm to the people within the community group, within the church. 
Uh, and so this is a way of measuring whether they are genuinely people who belong to that narrow way or whether they are people who, um, who fall outside of that narrow way. And their actions are a way of judging that. Um, so before anyone throws me out for heresy of, of, um, of me saying that, that works um, are, are as important as faith or that they, um, that they should be considered alongside faith and faithfulness, uh, let's actually look at the coming verses. Um, as I said, context is everything. So if we go on from um, verse 20 on to verses 21 through 24, listen to what Jesus says as he continues this, uh, this passage. Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and performed many miracles in your name. But I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's law. So we've just discussed in uh, verses 15 through 20, how it is that um, genuine fruit is identified. And so here we end up shifting to looking at how genuine fruit um, is authentic to the type of tree that it comes from, to now talking about what, who is a genuine disciple. And so Jesus says in verse 21b, um, that the genuine disciple is the person um, who actually does the will of my father. And so notice again, we have the same verb that puts the emphasis on the doing of something, the action that comes out of one's nature, one's faith, one's character. Um, so who is, the, who is the genuine disciple? The genuine disciple is the one who does the things of the father. Um, and note the criteria that are used here by the people who are trying to enter the kingdom um, but are found unworthy. What are the things that they claim for themselves? They claim prophecy, they claim casting out demons, and they claim performing of miracles. All of those three things are actions that in some way would appear to correspond with um, religious authenticity. Um, so even the actions that are being claimed by these people for entering the kingdom um, are is their criteria for claiming to be able to enter the kingdom is based upon their actions based upon the fruit that they have produced. Uh, now those claims appear, uh, Matthew doesn't um, go on to kind of uh, explore this idea or detail the, the critique of why these claims fail, uh, but they, these appear to be illegitimate claims. Um, it appears to be from, from verse 23, when Jesus replies that I never knew you, get away from me, you who break God's laws. Um, it suggests that their claims to prophecy and casting out demons and performing miracles, at least in the, with the emphasis in your name, that some component of that is a false claim. Um, so it's not, um, so, so the difficulty in this verse 22 is that they were not working for God, but that they were actually working against God. And this comes out more clearly in verse 23, um, when the end of this verse in the New Living Translation says, get away from me, you who break God's law. Um, but the actual Greek translation here is, get away from me, those of you who, those who work lawlessness. And so we get this working verb that very much parallels the idea of doing. So their claim is that we have done all of these faithful things for you. And Jesus counters by saying, actually, get away from me, you who have worked things that are against God's law, um, that have worked lawlessness. And so I want us to, to pause this, thinking about this idea of how one's actions correspond to faith, 
how one's faith results in action and fruit that correspond with that faithfulness. Um, I want us to, to call us back to chapter 5, verse 16. So I said kind of around 513, um, we can start seeing a, a shift where Jesus begins very much talking about how actual actions and behavior reflect one's inner attitude. Um, and in 516, we get the instruction that, that says, in the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. So in this verse, we get a very deliberate command about letting your deeds, letting your actions, letting the things that you are doing shine out in front of others so that they can see. Uh, and then from seeing those good deeds, they will actually end up praising the Father. This obviously creates some difficulty if we're just reading kind of a surface level. It creates some difficulty with chapter 6, verses 1 through 18 talk about uh, what appears to be the exact opposite of this, that anything we do related to our religious life is supposed to be done in private, and it's supposed to be hidden from people, and people aren't supposed to see it. We're supposed to do it only so that God knows and only to please God. Um, obviously, the, the key to unlocking that difficulty between these two things is, as we talked about when we discussed those passages, is intention. What is the intention with which we're doing things? Um, is the intention to please God or is the intention to please people? Um, and so in 516, the intention is very, very clearly spelled out that you let your good deeds shine. Uh, but the reason you're letting those good, good deeds shine is that everyone will then praise your heavenly father. So the intention behind that is good. Um, it's not an attempt to self-glorify or to put other people in front of them. Um, but notice there in 516 and here in chapter 7, um, it is not doing that is praised. We aren't um, commended to do. We aren't commended just to action. We aren't commended to work. Um, here in, five, um, in 721, it is the doing of the will of the Father. So it's that will of the Father part that is important for us to pay attention to here. Um, in all of these verses, as we're commended to produce fruit, to do actions, to show our deeds, all of those are not just the value of having done something or the value of working towards something. It's actually the consequences that come out of doing things that are directly aligned with the will of God. Um, so the doing part of this is important for us to always connect back to the will of God and the praise of the Father um, as we go through um, these actions and live out these actions in our life. So I want us to pause briefly before we move on to the final section um, and just pose a question for, for you to think about. Um, the, the two questions I want us to kind of think about are, what are your thoughts on reading these verses with an emphasis on action or deeds? So if you've grown up in a tradition that emphasizes faith over deeds, which is a great majority of, of Christian traditions, um, especially evangelical um, traditions that have put a heavy emphasis on um, these ideas, then what is the gut reaction you have? To reading these verses and noticing that there is actually an emphasis on action, that there is actually an emphasis and a call towards letting one's deeds shine. Um, I'm just curious for you to think and reflect on that and think about what is the immediate gut reaction I have to that. Um, the second one that we haven't put as much emphasis on in the lesson today, but um, I mentioned it at the, at the beginning, and that is how does the theme of judgment and future judgment and future consequences um, sit with you as a reader of this passage. Um, we've talked about in previous chapters that for a lot of modern readers, there's an uncomfortableness 
of the passages that call for a reward or call for doing something so that you can be rewarded for it. Um, and so kind of along those lines, as I mentioned, is the inverse of that that we now get of not only doing something so that you can have a positive reward out of it, but then actually doing something so that you can avoid a negative consequence so you can avoid judgment that comes in the end. Um, so I'd be curious as well for you just to think on how those themes of judgment and future consequence fit with the call for uh, pleasing God and being rewarded for that, those actions that please God um, and how it sits with uh, an uncomfortableness with some of those things if you, if you feel that as you read these verses. So I want us to move towards closing here um, in what is probably a well-known passage for a lot of people who have grown up in any type of vacation Bible school setting because there is um, a song that is based on uh, the wise man and the foolish man building their house upon the rock and sand. Um, and so that's the, the parable that Jesus uses to close out the Sermon on the Mount. So it's probably important and it's probably significant that this is the closing lines of the Sermon on the Mount. So as we're paying attention to them, we need to think not only about what is it that these particular individual verses are saying as a unit, but how are they functioning as the close of the entire Sermon on the Mount? What is it pushing the audience towards? Um, what is the audience supposed to draw from this and learn from this as the final words, the final things that they hear um, echoing in their ears as they leave the Sermon on the Mount? So let me read verses, uh, chapter 7, verse 24 uh, through 29. And this is, the, this is all the way through the end of the Sermon on the Mount with the, the narrative closing as well. Anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise, like a person who builds a house on solid rock. Though the rain comes in torrents and the floodwaters rise and the winds beat against that house, it won't collapse because it is built on bedrock. But anyone who hears my teachings and doesn't obey is foolish, like a person who builds a house on sand. When the rains and the floods come and the winds beat against the house, it will collapse with a mighty crash. And then verse 28, that's the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Verse 28, the narrative picks up that when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teachings, for he taught with real authority, quite unlike their teachers of religious law. So how does one become a wise builder? So we look at these verses. This is very similar to the question we asked earlier. How does one enter into the narrow way? How does one choose the narrow way? Um, the question here that comes out of these verses is how does one become a wise builder? Um, and that verse 24 gives us the very clear explanation for that, that anyone who listens to my teachings and follows them. So it's the person who not only hears and learns from Jesus's teaching, but then puts them into action, puts them into some, some sort of concrete action. Um, that person is like someone who builds upon a solid, solid foundation. So notice um, an important part of this idea that comes up here is that the temporal aspect that's introduced, right? Is that we now have introduced in these verses a present situation and a future situation. The present situation is that there are two people who are building um, or two types of people who are building, I guess we could say. And the future situation is what will happen to what they have produced when the storm comes. So we have this present and we have this future. Now, 
what happens is that the things that in the present moment look to be very sound, because notice that in verse 25, uh, I'm sorry, verse 24, and then verse 26, um, both people build a house. And from, a, from an outward perspective, there doesn't appear to be um, any difference that's noted in Matthew in this construction of these two houses. Now, the difference in these two houses is only revealed in the future. So in the present, they appear to be exactly the same. In the future, when the storms come, when the floodwaters rise, when the winds beat against the house, then it is revealed which of these true houses is genuine, which of these two houses has a solid foundation. But it's only in that future when the, when the storm comes that that revelation comes. Now, I would ask if that logic of things appearing in the present in one way but being different in the future sounds familiar to us, and I would hope it would, because I mentioned at the beginning that we didn't need to review the Matthean contrast because it would come up later. And that's exactly what we have in these verses. The Matthean contrast that we've discussed every week so far is the idea that the logic that applies to this world actually falls apart whenever it's applied to the kingdom of heaven. And then the flip side of that is just that the logic of the kingdom of heaven, if we attempt to bring it into this world, doesn't appear to make sense to, the, to this world. Um, and that's exactly what we have in these verses that talk about the builder, um, is that in the present time, there are situations and people and activities that appear to be making sense in this world and appear to be um, living up to, you know, whatever religious standards the world might have. But there is a future time when the logic of this world will be stripped away and only the logic of the kingdom of heaven will remain. And when that logic of the kingdom of heaven remains, then those things that now appear legitimate will no longer appear legitimate because the criteria that's used to judge them is different than what was used in the, in the earthly realm. And that's essentially what we have here with this story is that the things that are built on a non-firm foundation, a weak foundation, that foundation will be revealed in the future. Um, and in, in that revelation, we find that the things that we thought were working are not. And so this recalls to mind then the hypocrite passages that we've looked at of don't be like the hypocrites who do things outwardly to appear that things that their religious life is spectacular and they boast in front of others and they pray in front of others and they give in front of others, but instead do these things to please God because the logic of the world that says boasting to please people is not the logic that is going to function in the kingdom of heaven and is not the function, the logic that's going to provide a reward um, in the kingdom of heaven. And so it's important that, as we noted, Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount with these, this analogy, with this parable, with the parable of this, the builder who is the wise builder building on a solid foundation. And in a sense, the Sermon on the Mount ends then by giving us a direct and concrete example of the Matthean contrast. And so the audience is encouraged as their takeaway from the closing lines of the Sermon on the Mount to go from this Sermon on the Mount and keep in mind this contrast that the things that appear to be working in this world are not the things that necessarily are working according to a kingdom logic. And we have to think with that kingdom logic mind, even if it appears not to make sense to the earthly realm at this time, we do it because we're citizens of the kingdom and we live in harmony with the kingdom as well. 
So I want us to just briefly close with a few kind of general observations on the Sermon on the Mount as a whole. Obviously, we can't go back and cover all of these points um, at length, but I think it's worth us having reached the end of the Sermon on the Mount for us to just pause and to, to draw out just three points that are of significance to our, our study. These are not obviously the only themes that have appeared. They're not the only things that are significant in the Sermon on the Mount, but they're three things that I have tried to draw attention to throughout that I think are worth us taking away. Um, so the Sermon on the Mount as a whole illustrates a concern for at least these three things. One of them is the inner intentions. Um, the inner intentions of a person go a long way in determining the value of their actions. And it's not the opposite that's true. It's not the legitimacy or the power of the actions that determines um, whether a person can be deemed internally, um, whether their intentions can be properly judged by those actions. But it is the actions that produce the, uh, it is, I'm sorry, it is the intentions that then produce the actions that allow us to judge those, those inner, um, the, the inner thoughts and the inner workings of a person. And so we see that in a couple passages. Uh, the most obvious that we just mentioned um, is the hypocrite passages. So don't be like the hypocrites. And one of the key things that we took away from that passage in discussing how one decides whether you're being like the hypocrite or not is that it maybe isn't exactly about always doing things in absolute um, privacy where nobody knows anything because 5, um, 516 has already told us that we need to do certain good deeds in front of others so that God receives praise for them. So it's not just that we avoid all type of public action. It's that the intention of why we're doing these things is critical. Um, and then another example of that is the judging passage that we get about not judging others. And part of the difficulty that arises in our desire to judge others is that it actually reveals a shortcoming of our own inner intentions. And so we're called whenever judgment, um, whenever our proclivity towards judgment kind of creeps in, we're called to reflect on our inner intentions and what that means um, about us. Closely related to that passage and actually using the passage on judgment, um, again, is that a key theme that goes throughout the Sermon on the Mount is a love for others. How are our inner thoughts and beliefs towards God manifesting themselves in our love for other people? How are we actually living out these, these convictions that we have in a way that shows a concern for our sisters and our brothers in the church, as well as for the humanity that surrounds us in this world? So we get that in the judging others passages. Um, and then right after that, we get um, the, the, the golden rule as well about treating others as we ourselves would like to be treated. Um, so throughout, if we pay attention to it, the Sermon on the Mount gives us this idea of an emphasis on other people. Um, and then the last one that I won't rehash because we've covered it every single week and we've covered it just three or four minutes ago, um, is that we are called to embrace an otherworldly logic. We're called to embrace a logic that doesn't make sense in this world, um, but we are called instead to think about the logic of the kingdom of heaven and to embrace the logic of the kingdom of heaven. So those are the key ideas um, that we can see kind of weaving their way throughout the Sermon on the Mount um, as, as it unfolds in the Gospel of Matthew. I hope that as we've gone through this study that, that you have found kind of this slower walk through the Sermon on the Mount to be fruitful. I hope that it's drawn your attention to some key things that we've forgotten. And I hope that as you go back and read it, that you would go back and read it again 
um, in one setting. It's it's very short to, to sit down and read three chapters of the New Testament. Sit down and read this in its whole setting and keep these three things in mind. How does the gospel, how does the Sermon on the Mount show us Matthew's intention for us having a concern for the inner intentions of ourselves, how that manifests in our love for other people, and then how our lives are conforming to this otherworldly logic that God has called us to. I've enjoyed this conversation with you all over the past several weeks, and I hope that as you move forward in your own life, um, that it bears fruit for you and that you're able to understand the Gospel of Matthew and the Sermon on the Mount um, in a new light. Hey, family, and welcome to Your Week with St. Luke's. We are so thankful to Dr. Zane McGee uh, for leading us through Matthew 7. Uh, I'm Pastor Jeremy. I'm here with Pastor Jan and Pastor Melissa, and we are here with Karen and Doug Weatherford to continue our talk about the Beatitudes as we move through uh, as we move through the book of Matthew. So it would be great if you all could introduce yourselves once again and share your faith journeys with us. Thank you. I'm Karen Weatherford. And I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> I'm married. <laughs> That's cool. Um, you know, faith journey, but it's a you know, big question, but yeah. I'll try to condense it down. Um, for me, um, I grew up with a mom and dad who had um, similar but very different journeys. Mm. Um, I had a sister, and um, I grew up in one town since I was four. My dad was one of six, and he um, was raised by his aunt. And his aunt's um, father was Methodist minister. I have, there's a lot of Methodist ministers in my family. Um, and I would say they would have gone to Asbury rather than Kenya, if that helps make sense. Wow. And that was the mew that I grew up into. So there was a lot, there was a lot of very clear, strong belief structures that um, I really wasn't... Um, that at reunions and Thanksgivings, and there were clear ways of behaving and being and doing that I picked up on. And I, I followed through on those. Um, my dad was always a great questioner. My dad, um, he, he grew up in poverty. He, um, he was on his own most of the time, but he had um, his aunt and his grandfather who gave him a good sense of core values, but he there were no boundaries for him. If there was one, he was going to cross it. <laughs> and I'm very, very thankful for that because it saved me, mm-hmm. to be honest. Um, I, my mom was also an amazing influence, um, very core, strong values. Um, she grew up in the Methodist Church in Kentucky. And um, there is always a way of being. And it's kind of like the good girl, be kind, be loving, and that's it. Um, in my youth group growing up, I went to Warren Willis for a summer when, before they had air conditioning in the cabins. <laughs> yeah. And, um, I remember having a big experience there, even seeing, you know, the vision of, of Christ before me and, mm-hmm. and just a lot of really, a lot of openings. It was, I would call it constriction or contraction, expansion, contraction, mm-hmm. expansion. And, um, and so I was very grateful for that, um, and then eventually went to college, went to a liberal arts college. I went to Rollins College. And, you know, I, we had a lot of people from a lot of different places, even though it was a small school. And that was, I would say, the beginning saying, you know, these stories I've been told, these belief system I've been told, 
may may not be true. <laughs> um, so I think I've just come to really appreciate that cultures are a container. Mm-hmm. And I've now seen them as a starting place rather than a place to end up and stay in. Mm-hmm. So there was like this little shock collar that I was wearing around mm-hmm. that um, I kept getting shocked and dissonance. And like, this doesn't seem right. This, you know, and, and I stayed in the container for a while. Mm-hmm. I think it's in part because of belonging mm-hmm. and things. Sure. Um, but I made the leap mm-hmm. <laughs> and jumped mm-hmm. over the perimeter at mm-hmm. some point. Um, and then I got pulled back into it. Um, Doug, early in our marriage, we were out in San Diego. Um, we ended up, I was being discipled by a person who with beautiful, beautiful, beautiful heart. Mm-hmm. Um, first time I really actually read the Bible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I grew up in this milieu, but I never really read the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, and dug into scripture. Um, and the things I discovered, um, I was being taught how to interpret versus a way and a process. And mm-hmm. that was both stimulating and exciting and I would say ultimately um, another form of trauma Mm. for me. Um, And then we moved back and I tried to continue that. And then I found um, some people who said, believe this or you're not a Christian, quote unquote. I uh, walked away from that in the parking lot. I remember very clearly I belonged and I didn't. I, I walked away and I was in the desert for a while. And eventually came to St. Luke's when my kids were little Mm. and grew up in the church and grew up with my kids teaching Sunday school and Mm. things. And even that had some really interesting things. And within St. Luke's, there's a, so it is a wide table. Mm. And um, I was paired up with some, I was teaching middle school, Sunday school, paired up with a person who knew the answers and knew the way to teach and Mm. this and that. Mm. And I thought, ooh, I must Ooh, <laughs> something's wrong with me. I'm deficient. I'm defi- yeah, I'm I am deficient. Yeah. I'm deficient. Yeah. Anyway, a lot of that stuff. Um, like others I've heard today, um, had a, a guide that came into my life. I would say a spiritual guide that helped me make that leap again and yeah. again. I've come to appreciate what I've been taught enough to I, to really see the the value and the love and the healthiness of it, but also to try to let go of the parts that just really are damaging and cause a lot of suffering. Sure. And um, so I see that as another analogy of birth, mm. of life, of death, and then resurrection. Yeah. Um, Richard Rohr says order, disorder, reorder. Mm-hmm. Yes. Deconstruction, construction, right. all of that. Right. And I don't see it, I see it both as an arc and as you know, even today it's happening. Like mm-hmm. in, in the moment, even being here today, mm-hmm. it's kind of like this is, knowing we were coming here today, we are coming out of our cave. <laughs> sure, mm-hmm. sure. And, um, you know, and, and having been finding new language for things, not even knowing the name of God, how to say the name of God. Mm-hmm. I love the Jewish tradition, um, tradition of G-D, right. because it's so honoring to me of the infant, infinity, the the cosmic piece of it mm-hmm. that's also very grounded in our day-to-day experience so yeah. that's yeah that's the short answer at the yeah. <laughs> yeah. i mean you had so many 
you had so many really beautiful uh, analogies, even within your own explanation about the mm. contraction and the expansion, like a muscle, like a heart. Yeah. Right, right, right. And, and the listen, breathing process. Right. Yeah. And listening to you, it's like, I think we all have, uh, a lot of us have this experience of faith where we're told, we're told about what would happen when we venture off the island. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Until we meet real compassionate folks who are willing to teach us how to swim. Yeah. Right. Exactly. How about you, Doug? Well, I think I'll start my faith journey from my parents, so for context. Um, uh, my dad was uh, in the Marine Corps, and he grew up, um, his, uh, his parents had passed, so he was raised by his older brothers and sisters, and he was kind of bounced around between them. He went to, uh, um, I think, Baptist in, in a small town outside of Atlanta church. My mom... Grew up in a small town in South Carolina, and she went to a United Methodist Church. Um, and my perspective of of how they were, um, you know, they're post-depression children. They have very conservative, I would say, potentially stoic uh, ways of living. Right. And I think that was passed on to uh, to my brother and I. Mm -hmm. um, so we had um, we we weren't fully immersed in the Bible, um, but we did have an understanding and appreciation of, of, of having a relationship with God and, and Jesus being uh, our Savior. Um, and as, as being in the Marine Corps, we moved around uh, to a number of places, and when I went to church, it was on a base. And when you go to a church on a military base, they have all the faiths go to the same church. They just mm -hmm. set them aside. So mm -hmm. when I was going to uh, church, it, it didn't dawn on me that there was a problem with having other religions. Mm. Right? <laughs> yeah. Mm. It's totally okay. Mm. <laughs> so that's a precursor to something else coming along here later on. So, um, um, so yeah, I, mean, I was just a kid growing up. And right. kind of like Karen said, I was not immersed in, 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 in study of the Bible and, and having a stronger connection in terms of uh, uh, faith-based uh, backing. Um, uh, however, I do think, from looking back, the values that I grew up with were very aligned with what I understand Christ is, is, is asking us to, 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 to do and to be like. Mm -hmm. So going back to the point where Karen said, at when I was stationed out in San Diego, actually there is a, a friend of mine that we grew up together um, when we lived at Quantico in Virginia. And um, he, uh, uh, he lived out in San Diego and we went to College Baptist in San Diego. And the same points that Karen made is that we, um, we were in an environment where we were told what the, what, how to interpret scripture. And that was a little odd, but we're like, okay, I guess this is the way it works. And so we were learning and, and understanding these things. And then we were told, you know, certain things about our behaviors. Well, this is what you have to do. And this is how things have to be. Um, and it wasn't, um, I, I would say, I mean, it wasn't something that we felt, oh, this is horrible. And I, I, I've never had any just things that, that bothered me terribly. It was just like, Hmm. It's some cognitive dissonance that's associated with, uh, okay, well, that's not the way I kind of understand, or I guess my intuition, mm -hmm. from what I understand God to be, um, that doesn't seem intuitively to be right. 
So uh, we wound up moving back uh, to, uh, to Orlando after I got out of the, uh, or actually not back, I mean moving to Orlando after I, I uh, got out of the Navy. And I don't think we were in church for, for a few years, but then we came to St. Luke's. And then sometime in the mid-90s, uh, we both did discipleship one mm -hmm. with Ginger Jackson. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, yes. <laughs> and that was like, oh my gosh, this is wonderful. Because the, uh, we just absolutely loved everyone that was in the class with us. I think most of those folks have moved on. And I, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't think they're around except for one. Um, uh, Kate Carney had moved up to Eustis and she's back in Orlando now. Used, used to be St. Luke with us and just incredibly strong friends and based off of off of how we 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 shared and we talked inside of Discipleship One. It was not instruction as as we were getting out in San Diego. It was it was a dialogue. It was asking us questions and the like for that. The biggest thing I, I, I think that I took away from that in terms of, because um, at the point, I don't know that I actually had any deconstruction at, uh, at that point in time, but the biggest thing that I took away that I thought was absolutely wonderful is like, oh my gosh, Doc has this incredible insight, <laughs> is that Christ was telling us that the nature of who we are is a state of ignorance and arrogance, and that the... And that the story of original sin is not the same context of being the depravity of man. Original sin is the fact that we are in a state of ignorance and arrogance. We are in a state of consciousness that binds us from expanding ourselves to fully appreciate and love God. So, um, so that was... Um, that was something that I, I internalized, mm. and, and with that, I just tried to make that sort of part of my core belief system in terms of how I interacted with everybody. Mm. And I was like, you know, if I kind of hold on to this, you know, a lot of these other things will just fall into place. So that's the kind of way that I, I, um, I, I held on to things, and when people talked about stuff, I said, well, here's my theory. <laughs> okay. Um, but most of the folks that um, I think that we socialized with were were not like tied in uh, tightly into religious circles. So um, I think you know my father when uh, when I was growing up, you know, basically was saying we you know we don't we don't really talk about our faith. We let people understand our faith through our actions. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just heard you know Hugh Jackman saying his father told him the same thing on a, on a podcast. Mm -hmm. um, so. That was, uh, uh, I think that's just kind of been sort of in sort of that stream mm -hmm. um, for a while. That the biggest thing, getting back to my point I said before, that, that kind of kept gnawing at me was that the, the concept of, of the way that uh, we, were, we were taught out in San Diego, and that was... Um, what I, I term as insurance policy believers. Right, mm -hmm. right, yeah. And, and the construct of insurance policy believers is not, a, uh, one of the things I love about St. Luke's that really helps to nail stuff down is the corporate message of salvation for us 
as opposed to the personal salvation because that drives, uh, and I did not realize some of this stuff until after having been in our Living the Questions uh, yeah. class that we're at. And that's just, yeah. just been actually a gigantic rush of uh, a fountain of, of, of inspiration and understanding. Um, and the uh, <clears throat> I think about the insurance policy concept is all I have to do is say that I accept Jesus Christ as my Savior, and I can still be sinful, and I've got my insurance policy in place. Yeah. Yeah. My, the way I've interpreted that and, and, and troubled by that is there's no responsibility on me to live a life the way Christ has asked me to. Right. Yep. And that's... And that's always been somewhat troubling uh, um, to me. And I think the other piece of it is, is because of that perspective, that means that Christianity is a superior religion to all other religions. Right, right. And you make me think, uh, I served uh, one of my first ministry jobs. It was a Methodist church, United Methodist Church, but the, uh, the pastor had a, a Brownsville revival experience that changed everything for him. Mm. And my first week or so there, he and I were going to get burgers or something, and there was somebody, a street preacher, or somebody asked him something, what he does for a living. He says, I sell insurance. Fire insurance. And I was like, I'm in the wrong place. I'm in the wrong place. Because, right. no, there's this, this corporate, no, that's not what we're here to do. We're just here to express. So you made me think of that moment right away. Like, you know, like, it's amazing that we're in the that, right place. Uh, but I, I guess I hit that on, on the nail on your head, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think also with that, Doug. Um, also with that, Doug, I, I think you look at the motivation there. Yes. What yes. kind of it's what kind selfish. of uh, foundation for faith is simply yes. the desire to save myself from hell, as opposed to yes. moving from a place of love. You know what I mean? Exactly. A place of recognizing all people yeah. as being made in the image of God and wanting to honor the that. The belovedness. Right. Of right. That. Right. 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 Exactly. Right. 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 Exactly. And the right. the construct of an image <laughs> right. of God. Um, you know, God is the creator. Mm -hmm. We become co-creators with God, and that is the image of God. We've we've created God in our image by anthropomorphizing God, right. and that is takes us down horrible rabbit holes. So that that process that we're kind of like talking about here is is that we start from 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 Genesis. You know, right. let's let's go there of of the goodness and and all of this. It's interesting because we kind of see some of that that process in the Sermon on the Mount. Yes, yes. <laughs> and so this week we're in chapter seven, um, which it's interesting because if, if you, you start with the blessed are or the happy are, it's very, it's, it, it's not as fluffy as it feels, but it feels a little fluffier, mm -hmm. right? When you just read it, you, you start, you then get into to some of the, you have heard it says. And, and it's interesting because um, as, as Jeremy said in a, a few podcasts ago, he talked about how, you know, when you see Jesus on a mountain, he's talking to lots of people. And, and what, what I find interesting is I, I'm, this is my complete um, interpretation. I, as Jesus goes, some of his messages get harder and harder. So I almost, I almost have this vision of people walking away little by little. Um, and, and when we get to this last part, I almost have this vision of, of the, these are the core people left who are ready to hear this because this is where Jesus gets really serious. Mm -hmm. um, this is the harsher and, and a little bit harder. It's more like our Mark and Jesus that we saw in mm -hmm. the, the earlier parts of the year where he talks about judgment mm -hmm. and that, that we are going to be judged. 
probably not in the fire insurance way, but that if we have listened to all of these things, if we have done this work of discipleship that we see in the Beatitudes, that we see in the the reconstruction that he invites people to do, the deconstruction of you have heard it said and now I say to you, this is almost the reconstruction point where, oh, oh, this is hard because it, it is a little hard to read some of these things because we have have let go of some of those things like fire insurance and and some of those those unhelpful mm. things. But but these are these are some hard words to hear too of um, that you will receive the same judgment that you give. Uh, go in through the narrow gate. The gate that leads to destruction is broad. Watch out for false prophets. No one who's not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will get into the kingdom of hell. Like these are. These are not the the soft and fuzzy affirmations that we always want to hear from Jesus. Mm-hmm. But I I think these my 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 impression is that these are really directed to those people who are ready to go on the true discipleship journey, who are ready to get in the disciple Bible study, right, right, um, right. not just necessarily show up on Sunday morning. And they're 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 hardened. They've they've done that hard work of right. we've been saying it, deconstruction, right. Right. and now they're right. looking at again, that image that I use of this this like bookshelf of their lives and. There are core things that are central. Yeah. And so now you're raw and ready to do the work you all have been doing of, of, of rebuilding or, or reconstructing yeah. a life right. of faith that, that you can live with it, right? right? And you can right. you can you can swallow and be okay with. Right. Right. Yeah. So to to pick up off of what Melissa was saying, I at least from what I've been learning, I would say that Synthiology fits heavily into what you were just talking about, is the traditional way of looking at sin is certain functions that we either we do or we don't, or are we doing something or not, as opposed to separation. What is sin? Separation is from God. That's sin. And that separation from God is the state of our heart and what motivates us. So I think that's in alignment with what you're just talking about. 100%. And, uh, I, th- I think that, that that is a perfect example of this idea of looking at something we're given originally, looking at the world, the, the life that we're called to live in Jesus as we grow, and uh, changing our understanding and perspective of it. And so as our time draws nigh, I want to ask you all as folks who have done that work, who have committed to being in classes like Living the Questions, who have committed to uh, doing uh, and participating in that process yourself, what are some mistakes and pitfalls uh, that you all have experienced in that process of deconstructing and reconstructing and navigating those things that you would hope that others would avoid and you hope mm-hmm. that you can help others avoid. Can I start? Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, and I really dig deep inside of myself for that mm-hmm. answer. Um, I think there's this, you know, I used the reference of shock earlier. There's this um, anger that comes up mm-hmm. that, um, when you see how much harm that's been done and the suffering and it goes on all the time um, and you realize you participated in that or not and whatever ways you have. And also that um, I hear, even, even when I hear our current sermons, okay, I hear, you can hear it in a thousand different ways wherever you are. Right. And that's the talent of you guys. Mm. And it's also... Oh my gosh, there's there's so much to all of this. And um, there's a little grief process. I would say you get a little hung out to dry when you get these realizations that come around. And I had to go through, um, what do I do with this? 
And once I, I mentioned not having the language for it, um, it began to, um, well, I, I would say, I'm going to mention Barbara Reams' name. And she has been, she said to me, we're friends. We've been friends for a long time. I'm either going to leave the church or I'm going to start a new group here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it wasn't that it wasn't happening here. It just wasn't what I was hearing right. and who I was bumping up against. Mm-hmm. So it was happening, but I was missing out somehow. Mm-hmm. So she started um, that and started on a journey um, and the first series was a video series called Living the Questions. I had a lot of theologians who had gone through this whole, had this whole conversation right, yeah. a long time ago. I thought, where have I been? You know, mm-hmm. there, you know, this has been happening for a long time. I've, I've missed the conversation. I missed that. And so I noticed um, there was a, another us and them starting to happen, mm-hmm. which I started recognizing, well, here we go again. Mm-hmm. And there's danger in that. So does it go towards mm-hmm. criticism and cynicism? What's my choice here? What am I going to do with it? Mm-hmm. And I have had to work through that. Mm-hmm. Um, and coming back to what is the message here? Mm-hmm. If it's still love, then where does that fit? That doesn't fit in. Mm-hmm. And it goes back to mm-hmm. being myth. Mm-hmm. And that has so many... It's, it, there is no limit to that, well, and did, it's emptiness. And you've given too. such a perfect commercial um, for <laughs> for being in a small group of some sort too. Yeah, because true. if if you are only showing up on Sunday morning by yourself, only listening to yeah. what you hear in a message or music or whatever it is, then 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 you're only hearing that one piece. But if you're interacting with other people and you're going, oh, you're hearing some of this too, but you're hearing something different and being able to to grow in that way um, is powerful. Very powerful. And and people who are in a similar place, because there's a thousand access points to this too. Correct. And I think God meets us wherever those are. Yep. And there's no judgment on that either. Yep. You know, that that's the beauty of it as well. I also hired somebody, a therapist to work with me right. who said she was basically helps with, your spiritual journey. And she just passed away. I attended her funeral last Saturday. I was a part of it. She led me on a whole nother way of practices mm-hmm. and things that open the heart, like mantras and kirtans and mm-hmm. healing modalities that we actually don't talk a lot about, right. but um, a lot of faiths do. Mm-hmm. And um, I see mm-hmm. the value of all that. And so I got to lead a kirtan with her community, which was filled with people that and some of the churches wouldn't want those people in their churches, and they are the church. Right. Mm-hmm. And seeing each other as mirrors mm-hmm. that give us a reflection of ourselves, that's the body of Christ. that I've come to go, there it is, and delight in it. Mm-hmm. And that's the hard work, mm-hmm. is that, and just like wait for it, because there's always more to the story, and it's coming. So just be a little quiet, a little patient. And <laughs> it's going to get you, because it's, it's about the wounds and the suffering, and it's healing and wholeness. So, yeah. So, like <laughs> so, I'd like to build off of what Karen talked mm-hmm. about. And there's two components in terms of pitfalls because they are, they have to do with awareness and consciousness. And those, the, and Karen actually talked to one of them already. She talked about culture being a container. Mm-hmm. And, and, and what we have learned is culture is the basis for organized religion. Mm-hmm. So every religion that exists are based off of the culture they came from. And um, we've just finished reading, we just did the final chapter in uh, Meister Eckhart's, uh, uh, Matthew Fox talking about Meister Eckhart. 
And the way that that was so beautifully communicated was that think of an underground river that can never stop and will always flow. And that all these cultures have wells that they, they, uh, they burrow down to access that deep river. That river, the water, is, is the common wisdom that God provides for us and, and inspiration. And every one of these wells, the waters come up and they grow. And that wisdom is developed and interpreted and in very different perspectives and contexts. And, and, and when we look at each other, we see, well, that's not like me. Mm. But when you, when you look at theologians that study this stuff, it's like these are all core sets of things that, that God holds true, and it's across the world. So that type of thing is val- so validating for me and also hopeful because there's so— I think that it's a— Hopeful in the in the opportunity that as 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 people who are in this process mm-hmm. um, can recognize that that's not something to fear and, and recognize if you aren't labeled a Christian, then you um, that you're not you're not part of the elect or that you you right. are you're not part of God's children. Mm-hmm. So and, and that also is liberating to be able to communicate with others right. and feel comfortable right. about um, how can we be doing what Jesus told us. Now, they may have heard it in some different context and understood it, but we are working together within, within, within God's um, uh, uh, love and, and, and inspiration. Mm-hmm. So that's one, one piece of it. And I guess the other piece of it is in, the, in living the questions, every one of us, has uh, uh, has identified, and I, I call it the inertia of held identity. Mm. And so we have iner- we have identity based off of culture, tribe, and self. Uh, and I think even uh, uh, Bill Barnes did a, a, a book st- a review by Ben Sass. I think it was called mm-hmm. The Others or something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. So that's really talking very big on that notion of identity and how we live with uh, things, but. Mm-hmm. Identity is so strongly held; it is it can't be released, and and we we fear letting go of identity. And and, and we have folks in our class. We, we talk about that, mm-hmm. uh, and, and and again, it's 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 so it's so good that that small group. You actually act as uh, 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 we're co-creators in terms of our understanding. <laughs> we don't necessarily all agree with what it is, but we said okay, we understand, right. and we help each other through those difficulties. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, and it helps us kind of let go of some of those identities that we're holding on to. And even if we go like you know two or three books later on and revisit that, and they go, oh yes, I'm holding on to my my old identity and sort. Mm-hmm. So those are things I think that that we've felt, we've experienced, the folks in our groups that have experienced. And 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 in, in terms of offering that to folks, it's it, to me. Those are unconscious aspects of why we aren't doing the things that we are doing. In terms of why aren't we um, uh, moving in a direction as much as we think we should be mm-hmm. and, and following Christ's path, is there's a lot of unconscious programming inside of us because of these identities mm-hmm. that have been embedded into us. Yeah. Yeah. Largely what I hear you saying at the core of that is 
through this journey of deconstruction, construction, and navigating our faith, there has to be a certain openness and a willingness to do it together. And so I'm yes. thankful that we have been able to have this conversation and explore this together. Yes. I want to take this opportunity to say thank you to the Weatherfords for sharing your perspective and your wisdom. Thank you for listening and watching and blessings until we meet again. <laughs>